want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 23, be in verses 13 to 36 this morning. Matthew 23, 13 to 36 is where we're going to be. If you're around our household for any period of time, we're probably a lot like every other household in America, especially households that have small children. We often have to deal with the tattletale. You know that one? The, the kid that comes running to you to let you know what their sibling has done. And what they really want is for the living room to fill with the waters of justice and retribution flowing from mom and dad to their sibling. But if you pause sometimes when they come to you and tell you these stories, you listen to the details and you think, well, something doesn't add up here. There's some details that are missing from the story that you just told me. And so you pause and you ask, wait, what, what were you doing when all of that was going on? And all of a sudden, the cries for justice cease, and the tattletale feels the three fingers pointing back at them, and they all of a sudden go, I get foggy on the details, I don't really remember how it all shook out, and I don't know that I'm just, you know what, it doesn't really matter, go back to what you were doing, I'll leave you in peace. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to rain down a verbal judgment on the Pharisees that he's talking to. But lest we become the tattletale in the scenario and point the finger at the Pharisees and say, sick them, Jesus, we might consider that Jesus' words to the Pharisees actually have a lot of implications on our own lives as well. So with that, let's read in our passage, Matthew 23, 13 to 36. It's quite long, so just bear with me. Let's go through it. But woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold in the temple that is made, uh, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and selfish, self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are, a, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, for the blood of the righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this word that you have given to us in these scriptures is terrifying. It's harsh. I pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to understand what's being said here. That you would preach it to our hearts. Give us the insight, the spiritual insight to see these sins in our own lives, that we may also repent of them, turn to Christ and find salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, in December, the date was December 27th, we read, and I preached from Matthew 21, 1-11. And that is the scene where Jesus comes riding into the town of Jerusalem on a donkey. It's a scene we are very familiar with. It's a scene that the church celebrates to this day. It's a scene that we're here this morning actually recognizing. All the slides in the background have the palm branches on them and things like that to recognize Palm Sunday as the event just before Easter Sunday that we come to celebrate. The reason that we celebrate this event is first because it's really the first time in Jesus' ministry where he allows the people around him to openly and boldly proclaim who he is. If you think about that for just a second, and I mentioned this back then whenever I preached that sermon, if you think about it for just a second, it's really the first time that he doesn't tell them to be quiet, he doesn't go to them personally and address their need when they call him Son of David, he doesn't silence them or tell them to be quiet and go on their way. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't stop them from calling out who he truly is. He allows them, as he rides into town, to shout out 
Son of David. Save us, Son of David. And you'll notice that the vast majority of the people who recognize who He really is in the Bible, in the the rest of the Gospels, He tells to be quiet. He silences them, don't tell people who I am, and He he lets them go on on their way. But this is not true of Palm Sunday. He rides into town on Palm Sunday, and the crowd chants who Jesus is, and He lets it go on. Celebrates it, you might even say. But there's another big reason why we should really love Palm Sunday. And that is because when Jesus rides into town, Matthew reminds us that he rides into town on a donkey. In fact, Matthew corrects that and says, no, 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 it's not just on a donkey, it's on the foal of a donkey. In fact, Matthew is very clear to tell us it's a donkey so young that it had never been ridden on before, and this donkey is so young that his mama had to come along with him. Because if his mama didn't come along, he was going to go crazy. So here is this King Jesus riding in on this weak-kneed, feeble little foal, probably with his feet dragging the ground. And that whole scene tells us that this king that's riding into town on a donkey is also gentle and lowly. He's meek and He's mild. He's a king. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of David. But He's also meek and mild and He's coming to save us where we are. And I think this is a great comfort to us who are sinners to know that the One that is coming to save us, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards once put it, this One that's coming to save us is meek and is mild, and is reaching down, condescending to meet us where we are. And this is what we see on Palm Sunday. But then, do you remember the passage that we just read? Here is this passage that we come to this morning, where this Jesus seems very different than the Jesus that came riding into town on a donkey. He doesn't really seem meek and mild in this passage at all. He seems battle-ready. He seems fierce. He seems angry. This seems like an altogether different Lord condemning an entire group of people that are so-called religious authorities of the day. In fact, on a couple of occasions in that passage, if you notice, He condemns them to hell. You brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell, He says. In fact, this passage shows us that there are some, namely in this passage, the Pharisees, who refuse to receive this meek and mild Savior coming to condescend to them, to reach down to them in their sin. They refuse to receive that, but instead would rather face the fierce wrath of God, which they're about to get, and this morning we'll see why. Jesus is going to explain in this passage why. He's going to pronounce seven woes on the Pharisees. It's a very famous passage where Jesus gives seven woes to the Pharisees. And presumably, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are the target of these woes, are standing right there in the crowd. 
He has turned from his disciples in the previous passage all the way to them, where he's now going to condemn them to hell in front of everyone listening. And remember, just a few weeks ago, he told three parables, and at the end of those parables, it ended with them not getting into heaven. And then they asked him three questions that was designed to trap him in his own logic and discredit him in front of the people, but they ended up getting trapped in their own logic by Jesus' rebuttals to those. And then following that, he asks them a question that they can't answer, which brings them down in the eyes of the people. And then he turns to his own crowd of disciples and he says, you can listen to what they teach, but don't do what they do. Now he's turning to them. And he doesn't just say, don't be like those guys. He says, because you're going to hell. And so with all that, he now turns to the scribes and Pharisees and seven times he's going to tell them precisely why they are going to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. And these woes, though there are seven of them, they're broken up into pairs. The first and second paired together, third and fourth, fifth and sixth. And then the last woe stands all by itself. And so we're going to group these into pairs as we go through with the last one standing by itself, and it's going to tell the Pharisees why they are excluded from the kingdom of heaven. The first reason that he's going to give them in these first two woes is that they have zeal without saving knowledge. They have zeal without saving knowledge. So the first two woes occur there, you'll see, in verses 13 and 15. And I want you to notice, just real quick, because the question might have popped into your mind if you're really paying attention, that verse 14 is missing in most of your Bibles, unless you may have the King James Version. That's because, back when we translated the King James Version, I say we like I had anything to do with it. I, didn't have, I wasn't there. All right, But back in the 1600s, when we translated the King James Version, there was what we thought, originally, an eighth woe. Technically, the second in the order, but an eighth woe that was kind of wedged in there in verse 14, and it said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. But as time went by and we discovered older and older manuscripts of Matthew's gospel, we realized Matthew didn't originally include that in his gospel. And so it was translated in there by, or put in there by somebody else along the way, and we thought it was part of the Scriptures, and so we translated. So now it's been taken out, but it's been included there, probably in your Bibles, with a little note that says, verse 14, originally thought to have said this. All right? So, that being said, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says in verses 13 and 15, basically, have positioned themselves as bouncers to the kingdom of heaven. They're standing outside the door, and they're not letting anybody in. They're closing the door. Now, if it were just for that statement, we might not have an idea as to what Jesus was really talking about, but it becomes pretty clear what the religious leaders have done here the more we look at it, and particularly including verse 15. They don't actually understand how to get into the kingdom of heaven. They don't know themselves how to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember, they have been crystal clear up to this point that they do not think that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. 
They've been seeking, in even just the, the few recent passages, to discredit him in the eyes of the people that he's teaching. So they don't think that Jesus is the Messiah. But we happen to know that Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of heaven. And so, by them telling the other people that Jesus is not the way into the kingdom of heaven, they are shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven and not letting anyone else get in. They're presenting themselves and their religion as an alternative way to get into the kingdom of heaven. As we've seen, this gospel that they're promoting is instead a gospel of their own righteousness. Come in by works of the law. This is the way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They're telling people to follow their example of righteousness. If you do what we do and do what we teach, you will enter the kingdom of heaven, they say. But remember, Jesus has just told his disciples, you cannot do what they do because they are hypocrites. So, not only do they shut the door to heaven by excluding Jesus as the way, but then they point to themselves as the way of righteousness, follow us, and they make the people around them just as much a child of hell as they are. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 10, pointing to the exact same thing. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it's bad enough if they're just doing this amongst their own brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel, but they're not. They're actually going on mission trips. They're actually seeking to evangelize the lost, making proselytes, converts into Judaism that follow their own brand of religion. The same kind of Judaism they're teaching in the land, which ignores Jesus, cuts him out of the kingdom of heaven entirely and practices some hypocritical version of righteousness that tells everyone else to emulate. And they're failing to see that there's absolutely nothing they can do to earn their own righteousness. There's no good works that they can do. There's not enough that they can heap up on their own behalf that God would, that they would earn enough from God to merit salvation. And yet they think there is. So of all people, they, of all the people that they win, those people become more children of hell than they themselves are because they're being misled into what salvation really is and the whole time they think they have it. They think this is what salvation is. So they have zeal for their own brand of salvation. They have zeal for their own brand of righteousness, for their own religion. But it's without real saving knowledge. And so they condemn others by their efforts. They have zeal without saving knowledge. And second, the second reason they're condemned, he says, they value the earthly and devalue the eternal. They value the earthly and they devalue the eternal. So Jesus gives them two more woes. These happen in these nine verses. It's between verses 16 to 24. These 
woes 3 and 4. He calls them blind four times in in these nine verses. Now remember, they have no idea how to get into heaven themselves. They have no idea what it actually takes to get into heaven themselves. And I want you to also remember that the temple mount, or the, the temple itself, stands on top of Mount Moriah, or Mount Zion. Mount Zion stands next to Mount Moriah. They all became known as Mount Zion eventually, but Mount, the, the temple stands on top of Mount Zion, and the nation of Israel, if you'll recall your Old Testament, the nation of Israel is really supposed to lead other people to God. That's their job. He makes them a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19, and that, the meaning there is that they are supposed to point the nations to who the real God of the universe is is. And here we see that the leaders of the kingdom of priests, so if you will, the priests of the priests, don't understand themselves how to get into the kingdom of heaven. How are they supposed to lead anyone else? So case in point are the examples Jesus gives that they have no clue in their own value system. What are the things that they value? And first you can see what they value in how they instruct the nation to keep its vows. What makes a vow authoritative? Now apparently by this point in Jewish history there had developed some system where they would basically have some sort of uh, appraisal, I guess you would say, of the vows that they keep. Some sort of collateral that they would put up with their vows. When I was a kid it was uh, a pinky promise. That was... That was how you knew someone was serious. And if they were really serious, they would say, cross my heart and hope to die. And if they were extra serious, stick a needle in my eye. Right? And then, if the person was to, be, was to, to go on with their promise without question, they might even dare to be so bold as to swear on their mother's grave. Now, I would not recommend doing that. However, if someone were so foolish so as to swear on their own mother's grave, well, they would remain without question. Very serious, right? So, it seems by this point, the Jews had some system of collateral that they could put up against the oaths that they make. Now, what items, like the pinky or the crossing the heart or the eye, or the mother's grave. What items hold the top spots of value to the Pharisees? Well, you can see what they are. They're gold and gifts, presents, offerings, which would obviously be then collected by the priests. So they're gold. They're gifts that they put on the temple, or they put on the altar, and and the, the gold in the temple. So in other words, they are connecting value, the pinnacle of value, if you will, to material goods rather than the things that are truly considered sacred. Now, if if you're really astute and you've really been studying Matthew, you'll recall eight years ago, all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, when we were back there, that Jesus told them not to swear by the temple. But that's not his point here. His point is that it happens and that there's a system of value that they have connected to the oath-taking that they regularly take part in. 
and its material goods. And then the second example of this, he tells them starting in verse 23, if you see there, he says that they make a point of setting aside a tithe, 10% of, of everything, even their spices. But then they neglect the weightier matters of the law. He says, he, he mentions here specifically, what is it? Uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now he's quick to say, it's not that tithing is unimportant. It's not that some of these other things in the law are unimportant. It's that justice and mercy and faithfulness carry more weight with God than anything else. So all of those things that seem to be uh, lighter in terms of the law. It's not as though they're unimportant. They should be included with the weightier matters of the law. You should be doing both and, and you should consider with much more importance justice and mercy and righteousness, which you neglect. So Jesus has, remember, already told the Pharisees twice, back in Matthew 9 and I believe 13, that God desires mercy over sacrifice. But even beyond Jesus' own words, if you go back to God's words in Micah 6, 8, He says, As he, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He tells the nation of Israel time and time again what the weightier matters of the law really are. It's justice, love, kindness, and walking humbly with your God in faithfulness. But what these two things that he's here pronouncing woe on the nation of Israel really expose in the leadership in Israel is that their passions are really on possessions. They've opted for material goods and they've neglected the things of God like, like, that God loves, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, walking humbly with Him. And so He condemns them because they have zeal without knowledge and they value earthly, the earthly things and devalue the eternal. Third, He says their righteousness is only skin deep. You see this in, in verses 25 to 28. And it's very familiar to us as we've been going through Matthew. We've, we've seen that this has kind of been a common critique of the Pharisees for a long time now in this, in this book. And we've seen this as far back as even the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus condemns the hypocrites in Matthew 6, 16 to 18. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, their, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I want you to remember, just real quick, we've been using this word hypocrite. Jesus uses it seven times in this passage. He's used it before, describing the Pharisees. Remember what hypocrite means. It's quite literally a play actor. It's someone who is playing a role. It's an actor in a play, or a movie, or whatever your choice may be. They're acting on the outside as though they're righteous, but inside they have absolutely no desire for the things of the Lord. They want everyone to see how holy they are, but inwardly they are wasting away. And Jesus here gives two illustrations for this inward rot that is becoming of these hypocrites. The first, he says, is dinnerware. Now, it's common for them to wash all of their plates and all of their dishes and all of their cups and everything like that before they eat. And you remember back in 
chapter 15, even the Pharisees question Jesus because he doesn't wash his hands. Well, Mark even tells us about that same scene that they used to wash everything. And the reason they would wash everything is because you get your plates, you get your food, you get your cups, you get, you, you get material on, on, for your clothes, you get couches, all that, in the marketplace that is visited by Jew and Gentile alike. And so, if you buy a plate or a cup and it, it's been touched by a Gentile, heaven forbid, because now that plate is unclean and needs to be washed. And if it's not washed thoroughly, then the food or the drink that you put in it or on it might become vile and unclean. And then, hold on, you might put that into your mouth. Now, the uncleanness of the cup is transferred to the uncleanness of the water or whatever beverage it is. Then that uncleanness of that beverage has now transferred to your tongue and you have swallowed it. And it has gone from head to toe and made you ceremonially unclean. So Jesus uses that as his first example. You're like that cup. Except this cup is washed on the outside, but on the inside you can clearly tell that the host owns a cat. And there's hair all in there. Disgusting. second image he gives is of tombs. Whitewashed on the outside, but on the inside hold a rotting corpse. Now, next to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, likely where Jesus and the Pharisees and the crowds are standing here, next to the Temple Mount is the Valley of Kidron, and in the Valley of Kidron, on the other side of the valley, is this field of tombs. And if you Look out over from the Temple Mount, you can see this field of tombs, and it's even more shocking white than you can see in that picture behind me. When you look at these tombs, they're, they seem to go on forever, and these tombs have been around, some of them, back to the time of David nearly. And these tombs are old, old, some of them, very, very old. And before Passover, which is what they're here in Jerusalem for, the people would go through and clean these tombs. Why? Because, well, people are coming from all over Israel, and sometimes their ancestors are buried in Jerusalem, not just in these tombs, but tombs all over Jerusalem, and they might go visit the tombs of their ancestors. And if they might touch these tombs, they might become ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to participate in the festivities. And so, before these sacred festivals where you'd come into Jerusalem, you would have to whitewash these tombs. You would have to clean these tombs. And so, needless to say, both of these pictures that Jesus is using for these, the tombs or the plates, that, the plates that are dirty on the inside but clean on the outside, the tombs which are whitewashed on the outside but inside have decaying bodies, both of these pictures illustrate how dirty and rotten the Pharisees are on the inside, and both of these pictures are timely. Their righteousness is like the grave, which on the, white, on the outside is white, but has a rotting corpse on the inside. The, their righteousness is like dinnerware, spotless on the outside, but has filth on the inside. And they, they take great care in the way they present themselves to other people in their prayers, 
in their fasting. They want you to see and know what religious festival they're taking part in. So you might say, oh, look at them, they fast. they're, They're very serious about their religion. Look at them, I can tell he's in a moment of fasting. That's how serious he takes his relationship with the Lord. But, inside, they have zero heartfelt love for God at all. Nothing. They want you to think they do. Fourth thing he says here is in verse 29, their sin goes all the way back to the fall. It's the last one, and it's a little bit different than the other three. Verse 29, their sin goes back to the fall. So Jesus gets down to this last woe, and it has no pair, and he caps off this proclamation of judgment against the Pharisees and the scribes with one long explanation of, for what they've done. And I want you to understand what he's saying here first before then we talk about what it means. First he says in verse 29, they celebrate with the prophets of old. You can even follow along with me as I just walk through this. They celebrate the prophets of old. The That's the ones in Israel's past, the ones in the Old Testament. They celebrate these prophets. They they erect monuments to these prophets. And as they celebrate these prophets with monuments and clean tombs and such, they can't believe that their forefathers would be so bold as to condemn, to stone to death, to murder the prophets that came before. And they, they talk to themselves, they talk with themselves about how they would never do that. If we were living back then, we would never have killed the prophets of old. They say that in in verse 31. But then he tells them in verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers, and he proceeds to tell them what is about to happen. Okay? All the stuff that he's telling them now after Philip, then the measure of your fathers, is all what's about to take place in the future. He's going to send to them, he says, wise men, prophets, and scribes, whom they are going to kill and crucify and flog. Who are those? Well, namely him. But then they're going to crucify or they're going to stone Stephen to death. They're going to persecute Peter. They're going to persecute all the apostles, for that matter. So much so that the apostles then leave Jerusalem and spread the gospel ab- abroad because of the persecution growing in intensity there in the city of Jerusalem. So filling up then the measure of their fathers is basically that they're saying, we know that we are the children of our fathers, But we're not connected to them in their actions because we would never do that to the apostles or to the the prophets of old. But Jesus says, you're not only genetically connected to your fathers, you're spiritually connected to them as well. Because here's what you're about to do. You're about to take part in the same actions that they did. They killed the prophets and you're about to kill the prophets too. So in other words, your part of one long, unbroken chain that reaches all the way back into Israel's history. You tracking with me? How far does it go back? Well, he says there, all the way back to Abel. 
He says their guilt over what is to come and over what their forefathers have done is evidence that they are guilty all the way back to the beginning of Israel's sins when Cain killed Abel. Remember, that happens all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. It's the first murder in the Bible. And then he has this weird little phrase here about Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who's not the prophet Zechariah, but a different prophet, or, but a different person. And they murder him in the temple. All right? That happens at the end of the book of Chronicles, the end of the book of 2 Chronicles, which for the Hebrews is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So what Jesus is really saying here is that your sins go all the way back to the first murder of Abel and all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And everything in between. The fact that you're going to crucify me, that you're going to stone Stephen, that you're going to persecute the apostles and the prophets that I send for the kingdom is evidence that you're not only genetically tied to your forefathers, you are spiritually connected to them as well. You're just as much a child of hell as they are. Therefore, all the woe, he says, all the judgment, everything that could be proclaimed that is due to Israel is going to come upon this generation. How is that fair, you may ask? Because you're guilty of everything that they were guilty of. You're guilty along with them. And all that judgment is going to come right here on this generation. And literally, that generation of Pharisees is going to be judged by God. How? They're going to crucify the Son of God who claims that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then on the third day, he's going to get up from the grave and he is going to be vindicated by God, telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that everything they condemned him for was actually true. That God, in this battle between Pharisee and Jesus, chose Jesus. Their sinful hearts are going to be condemned. So the condemnation from God for all of Israel's past transgressions is going to fall upon this generation of Jewish leadership for their sinful hearts. Now, before we point the finger at the Pharisees and we say to them, whoa, whoa, whoa. Lest we become like that tattletale. Let's take a careful inventory of what these Pharisees are being condemned for. First, they have zeal without knowledge. Remember, that's because their failure to trust Christ for His righteousness. What they're wanting to do is provide their own righteousness. And they're thinking that they can do it. They think by the works that they do, that it will measure up to a righteousness that's worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That at some point their good deeds might be weighed against their regrettable mistakes. And that God might say in the judgment, hey, your good deeds, they weigh a lot. Those mistakes, we can sweep them under the table. You've qualified for the kingdom of heaven. I don't think 
that that idea is particular to the Pharisee and the scribes. Or even the Jews, for that matter. I don't think what Jesus is attacking here is strictly a Jewish system of religion. In fact, I'm guilty of doing that in my own life. Anytime that I sit down for just a second and I think about my life with God and I take inventory of my sin and maybe I'm reminded of that by others, maybe I'm reminded by my own mind or maybe I'm reminded by Satan or maybe I'm reminded from various ways of my past sins and indiscretions or even present sins. And I start to mope and I think, woe is me for all of those sins. And I think to myself, there's no way God could possibly forgive me for these sins. Do you know what I'm really doing? I'm calling Jesus' death fraudulent. I am now outrunning the grace that God has given in Christ. I know you think you're a pretty good sinner, but I'm far better. You see, I am the first person in human history that could possibly outrun the grace of God. My sin is so great. There's no way He could possibly forgive me. Or the opposite. When I sit down and I think, you know what, I am nailing this righteousness thing. God is lucky to have me. I'm guilty of the same things. If you ask 99 people out of 100 on the street, how do you get to heaven? They'll give you this. Because it turns out that what the Pharisees believe in is the religion that the world comes up with when they don't have Christ. Second, remember, they value the earthly and devalue the eternal. Look out. Think about this one for just a second. They prioritize wealth, they prioritize money, they prioritize riches and tangible things as having more worth than the things of God, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Ultimately, it betrays a significant misunderstanding about worship. So their priorities are on the earthly rather than the eternal. Now, I don't think this is particular to them either. I think I'm guilty of this as well. I place an incredible amount of importance on stuff. I'm guilty of that from time to time, regularly, I would say. I'll even total up the stuff that I have as a testimony to just how much God is blessing me and I'll say to myself, look at all the things that I have. God must be really blessing. What does that say about the person in Africa who has one one-thousandth of the things that you have? Has God cursed them? We'll look at our health as the means of blessing. Well, I have my health. At least we know there. God must be blessing. My college roommate is 37 years old and is on chemo for stage 4 colon cancer. What about him? God cursed him? In fact, you might say that God often brings us closer to him through suffering. 
So if that's the case and God is bringing him closer to me, am I just looking at the temporal rather than the eternal and thinking that's the means of God's blessing? But I'll feel good when my savings account grows and then I'll turn to the poor man who asked me for a dollar and I'll snub him because I'll reason with myself he'll probably just go spend it on booze or drugs. Neglecting the weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Third, he says they're being judged because their righteousness is only skin deep. They want to appear as though they have it all together. They want to appear on the outside. They want you to think that they are righteous and holy, even though they're quite happy to neglect all the hard work that goes into maintaining a relationship with the Lord because they're not truly a child of God. They don't care anything about that. They would rather you just think they are. They want you to think that they have it all together. And I think this is also part of the human condition. We got social media, which I'm quite confident will totally destroy the fabric of society. I'm confident in that. And... We, as Christians, should probably abandon it altogether, but that's another sermon for another day. But if you think about it for just a second, social media is such an incredible tool. We can keep up with everyone. It has done away with high school reunions. I can meet up with somebody that I haven't seen in 40 years, and I know everything that they would possibly tell me. We have a two-hour conversation, but I know when you went to the bathroom last. I know more than I want to know, more than you would possibly ever tell me in that two-hour catch-up conversation. But how do we use it? We want to show everyone how awesome our lives are. Got to take a picture of that quiet time this morning, because if it ain't on Instagram, it didn't happen. Got to look at the comments, make sure that people are liking it, make sure that people are complimenting me. Now, it's even reversed. The trend is now not to snap those kinds of things, but to show the self-deprecating moments. The, the moments where you don't have your life all together. You take a picture of your kid while he or she is throwing a fit. And you got to include in there, it's okay to not be okay. Just so that everyone knows that you get the point. Self-deprecation is in. But then got to go back to the comments. Make sure people like them. Make sure people are saying positive things to you. I care more what people think about me than I actually care about the heart level of righteousness that goes into a true relationship with the Lord. It's not true of just the Pharisees. That's us too. But this gets down to what I really want us to see. The condemnation that the scribes and the Pharisees are reaping right now is because the religion of the Pharisees was false. But the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees is the kind of religion that man comes up with by nature. It's a product of what we seek. It's a product of the fall. We are all children of Adam, and we are right there with Cain killing Abel. We want to side with Abel. We want to put our foot in the shoes of Abel and say, yeah, get him, Jesus. 
get those evil canes. We would have been Cain, not Abel. We would have been right there with Jezebel persecuting Elijah. We would have been right there with the rest of Israel killing all the prophets because the reality is that if I was in the position of power back then, I would have done the same things. I'm a child of Adam and I'm guilty right along with the Jews of worshiping at the foot of the religion of the world. And without the Spirit of God, there is no salvation. Any religion that you seek to manufacture is going to have those exact same defects. They're going to be riddled. We can look at any world religion and we're going to see it riddled with the exact same defects that Jesus is here condemning. The only thing that's not is the true gospel. Whereby Jesus came down in flesh, was perfect in all of His works, thereby earning the righteousness of God, and yet instead of taking all the rewards that He rightfully deserved by His actions, He laid down His life and suffered the wrath of God on your behalf and offers you by faith His meritorious righteous works so that you can simply by faith in His actions have all the merits of the kingdom of heaven. Not because of what you earned, but because of what Christ earned for you. That's the only way. Every single other religion, even humanism, which our culture is turning towards now, is riddled with these exact same sins, errors, false doctrines that Jesus is condemning. See, the beauty Well, really, the sad part first is that judgment is passed all around. We all get it. We all get a measure of the cup of the judgment of the fury of the wrath of God. But the beauty that we're looking at here, as we're reminded of what Jesus is condemning and sentencing the Pharisees to hell, is that Jesus took the cup of that judgment for you and for me and drained it to the dregs. He's going to drink it all. That's the beauty of what we're seeing here. So maybe for a moment we could consider that the judgment and wrath from which He came to spare us is immense. And so maybe Palm Sunday then, for us, can become just a moment of lament. Maybe it can remind us just, just for a brief moment of grief, of sadness, where when we realize what He came to save us from, that we might see our sin as great. And we might then see what He did as profound. And we might see our deep, deep need for Him, every single one of us. And maybe then we can truly join in the chorus that's there watching Him walk into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And with that crowd there, laying our palm branches on the ground, we can also say with them, 
save us. Son of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reveal in our hearts what only you can, which is our deep and abiding need for you. That you will allow us this Sabbath day, this Sunday, to just stop. To just rest. Rest in knowing that Christ has provided our righteousness for us. We know, the New Testament authors tell us time and again, our Sabbath rest has come in Christ. That we might not toil and spin our wheels, not producing any kind of righteousness of our own, that maybe we can just rest for a moment in perpetuity, knowing that Christ has done it for us. All of my shortcomings swallowed on the cross. All of my sins, my rebellions, my walkings away, my wanderings, my cursings, my everything I've ever done, future sins, past sins, and present sins that I'm still dealing with, swallowed in the cross. Perhaps, maybe, there are some even wrestling right now with sins that are heavy on their heart. I pray that you would remind them through your word, the word that's been preached, and other scriptures as well. You've taken it in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And may that lead us deep and abiding worship throughout our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.